0: Romans chapter 5 and verse 12 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. It is impossible to overstate the gravity of what transpired in the Garden of Eden on that fateful day at the dawn of human history. There is simply no way to employ hyperbole in reference to the fall of man. The Apostle Paul summarized the effect of Adam's sin in Romans chapter 5 by stating that through his sin, death entered into the human experience and began its devastating reign over the human race. Just think of the implications of Romans 5.12. Every cancer, every car wreck, Every child who dies in infancy, every senior adult who succumbs to the ravages of old age, every atrocity, every genocide, every loved one you've ever buried, every funeral you've ever attended is the result of Adam's sin. And the death of the body is merely symptomatic of a far more ghastly reality which is the death of the Spirit that results from being severed by sin from its union and communion with the living God. When Adam turned away from his posture of love, trust, honor, obedience, and enjoyment of God to reach for that forbidden fruit of sovereignty and self-determination, all humanity turned aside in him And his rebellion set the course for every generation of man to follow. Ever since the fall of man, every infant is brought forth in iniquity and is conceived in sin. So says Psalm 51.5. And continues down their hell-bound path unless or until they are intercepted by divine grace. Which is precisely what I pray God would do for some of us here this morning. Hell is filled with stubborn, self-serving, self-glorifying, sovereignty-seeking sinners who, like their father Adam, have sought to usurp God's sovereign throne. Death reigns over the human race because of Adam's sin. So Genesis 3 is not some children's fable about a snake and an apple and making bad choices. My aim this morning is to take this very familiar text and to transform it in your mind from all of the bright, vibrant colors of Sunday school into the dark, insidious, stormy event that it was. You should hear thunder rumbling. Underneath this text. I want us to tremble. Before the word this morning. I want us to tremble at the way in which Adam. The image bearer. The covenant head. The progenitor of the human race. Provoked the Lord to wrath. And plunged the entire race into into ruin. Because I'm convinced. That. Unless you tremble before the fall of man and the terror of God's wrath which it produced, you can never tremble before the redemption of man and the wonder of God's grace. And I want that for us. I want that for us Sunday. I want us to be able to rejoice in the demonstration of God's grace that comes through the death and resurrection of Christ. And you can't do that until you recognize why his death and resurrection was necessary. And that runs us all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. The fall of man is only one of two true, tr- true turning events, turning points in history. And we're, we will look closely at both over the course of this holy week. This Palm Sunday morning, we will examine Genesis 3 as a whole and focus our attention on both the anatomy and the atrocity of sin. The first original sin itself and then sin as it replicates and reproduces itself in the lives of every man born in Adam. Then Friday night, Good Friday evening, we will focus on the atonement for sin. Examining closely the astonishing promise that God gives to Adam and Eve in Genesis 3.15, which is followed by the astonishing act that God performs in their presence in Genesis 3.21 when He clothes them in the skins of a bloody sacrifice. The next Sunday morning, Easter morning, we will tie it all together by turning our attention to justification by faith alone, and consider the offerings of Cain and Abel, and why Abel's offering was accepted by God, and why Cain's was rejected, and therefore how we may be found acceptable in God's sight as well. I hope you will make it a point to take this journey with us through Genesis 3 and 4 during these three services of Holy Week. Come and let this week transform you from the inside out. So, how did this happen? What could possibly have induced Adam and Eve to forfeit their birthright, their fellowship with God, their garden paradise, the destiny of their unborn children, and life itself for a piece of fruit? Furthermore, what could possibly induce us to do the same? I want to break down verses 1 to 7. I want to show you what happened that, that fateful day in the garden. And what happens when any one of us chooses sin over the sovereignty of God, exchanging the glory of God for idols, suppressing the truth and unrighteousness, and worshiping and serving the creature rather than the Creator. We'll begin by examining the tempter. Moses records in Genesis 3.1, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made he said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? What does Moses mean? What does he mean that the serpent was more crafty than the other beasts of the field? Why is the snake talking to begin with? Furthermore, why why does Eve seem unsurprised that the serpent is communicating with her. Well, as you can see, the text is not concerned to answer these questions, not in great detail. This has led more than one commentator to the conclusion, and I agree, that we're not to be concerned so much with what the snake is, but with what the snake says. But at least a few conclusions may be reached as to the identity of the serpent of Genesis chapter 3. Though it is not explicitly stated in this passage, nor, to my knowledge, anywhere else in the Old Testament, the New Testament on three occasions identifies this serpent in some way, shape, or form with none other than Satan himself. The first is in Romans chapter 16 and verse 20 where Paul is referring to the promise that we'll get to in just a little bit, the promise of Genesis 3.15 of the seed of the woman who will come forth from the woman and will, will crush the head of the serpent. And he writes to the church at Rome and he says, Likewise, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Then in Revelation chapter 12, the Apostle John refers to Satan as the great dragon, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world in a clear reference to the promise of Genesis 3.15 and the events of that chapter. He does the very same thing a second time in Revelation chapter 20 and verse 2. So on the authority of these three New Testament instances I think it's clear that the serpent of Genesis 3 is to be identified with Satan. The tempter, the deceiver, the accuser of the brethren, the one whom Jesus says was a liar and a murderer from the beginning. Now whether that means the serpent of Genesis 3-1 is Satan manifested in serpent form or is a real serpent possessed and inhabited by Satan is unclear and frankly unimportant. It's obvious from the personal nature of his conversation with Eve and the personal nature of God's curse upon him in verse 15, that this is more than a mere snake. Satan was the tempter in the Garden of Eden, and Satan remains the tempter in the world today. So we turn our attention now to the tempted, who are Adam and Eve. There are two important points to make under this heading. The first is that Adam and Eve were not alone in the garden. Now they had not yet born any children and so they remained the two only human beings on the planet. But covenantally speaking, the entire human race, all of us, were there with Adam, in Adam, in the garden when he fell. That's what Paul is talking about in Romans chapter 5 when he says, Through one man sin entered the world and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all men sinned. When? In Adam. When Adam sinned. We became transgressors in Adam. When he fell, we fell. When he sinned, we became sinners. When he incurred guilt, we became guilty. Because Adam is the covenantal head of the human race, we were representatively present in the Garden of Eden when Adam was tempted and fell into sin. This is such an important theological concept. Our unity, our covenantal unity in Adam is absolutely fundamental to your understanding of the Gospel. Because it not only explains why Adam's sin has any effect on us, but it explains how Christ's obedience has any effect on us. In the same way that Adam's sin in the garden was imputed to all those whom he represented in the garden, even so is Christ's righteousness completed on the cross imputed to everyone whom Christ represented on the cross. So the very same way in which we fell is the very same way in which we're saved. You can't understand the gospel apart from Genesis 3. Secondly, it seems that Adam and Eve were tempted in somewhat different ways. Throughout Scripture, the responsibility for the fall is uniformly laid on the feet and placed on the shoulders of Adam. And not Eve. Which is interesting because in Genesis chapter 3, Adam takes a rather passive role in this whole thing. And it's Eve who has the conversation with Satan. So why can't we blame the woman? It's what Adam tried to do. Didn't work out well for him. Hasn't worked well for any man since. Well, this fact caught the attention of the Apostle Paul. In a passage in which he is speaking and delineating the roles of women and men within the church, he bases his prohibition on women teaching men on a very interesting argument. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. Okay? If he'd have stopped there, I, I would totally understand him. All right? So he's making an argument from the, um, the primary creation of Adam uh, prior to Eve. But he doesn't stop there. He says, and, in other words, and here's another argument. Adam was not deceived. The woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Adam was not deceived. Eve was deceived. So what does that make Adam? It makes Adam a coward. To Adam was granted the headship, and with that headship came an authority and a responsibility to guard the garden of the Lord and to guard his wife whom God had given him. And he failed in his responsibility, not under the veil of deception, but with his eyes wide open Eve was deceived Adam knew what he was doing What should Adam have done in Genesis 3 If there were no fall how would we read Genesis 3 how would it go Well Adam would have stepped forward between Satan and his wife whom he had been given with whom in whom he was or whom he was entrusted to guard He would have stepped between them, and he would have resisted Satan's temptations through faith in God's Word, just like the second Adam did. When when the second Adam was in the wilderness, and Satan came and tempted him, and he keeps parrying Satan's thrusts with the Word of God. And he should have driven Satan out of the garden. Get thee behind me, Satan. And the story would have gone very differently. We turn to the temptation itself. As we will see, it's it's not about forbidden fruit. It's about something far deeper, something far more desirous to human nature. The fall, the fruit, is about self-autonomy and self-determination. The serpent said to the woman, did God actually say And evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and she ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, who was with her yet silent, and he ate. At issue is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and God's command prohibiting him from eating of the fruit of that particular tree. We first ran across this tree a couple of weeks ago in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 9. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Then in verse 15 the Lord issues the command with respect to the tree. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For the day that you eat from it, you shall surely die. Now we learned a couple of weeks ago when we looked at the covenant of creation that Adam and Eve were bound, they were obligated to love, trust, honor, obey, and enjoy God with all of their being. And it seems as if God formed this tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the Garden of Eden and forbid them to eat of it as a test of their covenant faithfulness. Obey God's command, continue in love, trust, honor, obedience, and enjoyment of God, and you'll eat of the tree of life, and you and all of your descendants will live forever. Disobey my command, reach for this knowledge which is not given to you, Step outside and turn away from this relationship of love, trust, honor, obedience and enjoyment and you will surely die. That was the covenant. Those were the terms of the covenant. And this tree represented the test of the covenant. By encouraging them to enjoy the bounty of his good creation, yet forbidding them to eat of this one tree, God was saying to them, I have given you all things to enjoy but this one thing and this one thing alone is off limits. Don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Trust me to tell you what is good and evil, what is true and false and what is right and wrong. Trust me to take care of you and to satisfy you with every good thing. Trust me to know what is best for you and to act towards you in love and in mercy and in compassion and in fellowship. Trust me me, in other words, to be your God. This tree was a test of God's sovereignty and their living underneath it. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil represented an opportunity for them to prove. Whether they would live in glad and faithful obedience to their covenant Lord. Or whether they would stretch out their hand for what did not belong to them. Namely, sovereignty and self-determination. The ability to decide for oneself what is good and evil. The opportunity to be one's own God. To be autonomous from God. And as I said, if they pass the test... They would have eaten from the tree of life and they and their descendants would have lived forever in everlasting joy in God's presence. No mourning, no crying, no sickness, no pain, no death. Fail the test and they and all their seed would die under God's curse. So the story of the fall is not ultimately about Adam and Eve eating a forbidden fruit from a forbidden tree as if God were some grumpy old man who's trying to keep the neighbor kids off his grass and out of his orchard. The tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil were signs of the covenant. Which is not to say they weren't real trees. They were, but they represented something greater. Fail to recognize what is at stake in this temptation and you will miss the cosmic treachery, the utter betrayal, that is perpetrated in this act. You think of the tree as just a tree and you'll think, what's the big deal? Why does God fly off the handle about it? Understand what it is and you'll see the wonder of God's grace that He doesn't slay them where they stand. This temptation is about sovereignty and self-determination. Listen to what the serpent says. You will be like God you can have sovereignty for yourself you can decide for yourself what is good and evil and what is right and wrong for you you don't need God to rule over you you can be God and Eve was deceived and Adam was not Now it's instructive to note the tactics which Satan used in the temptation of Adam and Eve because they're the same tactics that he employs today. Why should he change? They worked beautifully then, they work beautiful now. The two tactics of Satan are these. The desecration of God's word and the defamation of God's character. These are the two tactics that he is using today in the lives of some of you. I want to show you how that works out. The first thing Satan did was to desecrate the word of God. Look at the, look at the way he masterfully corrupted and defiled God's command. It begins with this little word. Did God actually say? Did he, did he really say? You shall not eat of any tree of the garden. Is that what God said? No. No, it was not. Look closely at Genesis 2.16. Here's what God said. You may surely eat of every tree of the garden. You see the subtle difference? And yet, it goes straight to the character of God. In one, he's stingy. In the second, he's generous. Did God actually say, you can't eat of any tree of the garden? Of every tree of the garden, you may eat freely. There was but one tree forbidden them, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Every other tree God had created explicitly for their enjoyment. Why? Because He's generous and He's loving and He's kind. But by twisting the word of God, Satan called into question the character of God and began to paint him as a strict cosmic killjoy who was keeping good things away from his creatures. Which is the way some of you are tempted to think about God today. I would do what I want to do if God hadn't forbid it in his word. Why does God forbid it in his word? Because he wants to keep it from me. Well, the woman responded to the serpent, which was her first mistake, but then she adds to her error by misquoting. She misquotes and thereby misrepresents God's command. Verse 2, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat from the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Is that what God said? Well, it's a lot closer than the serpent's version. But there's three significant problems. Look closely. The first is that she omits the generous and gracious language of God that came on the front end of the command. God didn't just come in and say, all right, here's what you don't eat. He came in and he said, you see everything? You see this glorious abundance? I created everything for your enjoyment because I love you and I want to take care of you. There's one tree in the middle. Do not eat from this tree or you will surely die. So Eve skips over the generosity and she goes straight to the prohibition. Second, she adds a note of stringency to God's command by adding the phrase, neither shall you touch it. God hadn't said that. And third, like the serpent, she referred to God, Elohim, by an impersonal title rather than by his covenant name. From Genesis 2:4 on, Moses has been using only the covenant name of God, the personal name, the intimate name, Yahweh, Elohim. Satan comes in here and he just refers to him as, as the impersonal God, the majestic God. And Eve responds in the very same way, which I think is instructive because it's easier to transgress a mean-spirited and strict rule of an impersonal God than the generous and gracious command of a loving father, isn't it? Then comes the utmost desecration of God's word and the defamation of God's character. The serpent next denies the truthfulness of God's warning outright. You surely will not die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will become like God, knowing good and evil. God, Eve, is lying to you. He doesn't want you to eat from this tree because He wants you to continue in blind obedience and subservience to Him. He knows that if you eat from this tree, you will know for yourself what is good and evil, and you won't need them anymore. Thus, the defamation of God's character was complete. God is not a good and gracious Father. Now, God appears to be a deceitful, conniving, insecure tyrant, and it worked. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Satan succeeded in getting Eve's focus off of the word of God and changing her perception of the character of God, and suddenly the tree of death Seemed irresistible to her. Satan employs the same tactics today. Think of any temptation that you're experiencing right now. And I pray that the Holy Spirit would bring them to your mind. Right now, not other people's, yours. The temptation that you are facing right now, and you will see the same two tactics at work. The first thing Satan does is to desecrate the word of God to your mind either by twisting it to make it appear more lenient or more strict than it really is, or else by denying it all together, convincing you that when God says, let's just take some common ones out there. When God says the sexually immoral will not inherit the kingdom of God, therefore flee sexual immorality. Don't eat from the fruit of the tree of sexual immorality, or you will perish everlastingly in hell Satan twists that and makes you believe that when God says that, he doesn't really mean it. Or he means it only for other people, but certainly not for you. Or when the same passage, 1 Corinthians 6.10 says, hey, the greedy, they're not going to inherit the kingdom of heaven. Don't be a lover of money and so make shipwreck of your soul. You can't serve both God and wealth. And Satan comes to you and says, yeah, yeah. other people can't handle wealth, but you can. You can. You can. And when, when God speaks in that severe way, it's He's overstating the case, hoping to keep you. You know, just as long as you continue giving every now and then to the church, everything else is okay. And it it takes your focus totally off the fact that you get your only enjoyment from the stuff that you buy. Or the same passage, 1 Corinthians 6, 9, says, drunkards, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. Well, most people don't have the problems that I have, or I can can handle it, even though everyone around you tells you that you can't. You don't exercise moderation, and they would prefer that you don't. I got this. He desecrates the word of God, then he defames God's character by convincing you that God is withholding from you true pleasure and true joy because he selfishly and insecurely wants all of your attention and focus upon him. I guess God just wants me to be lonely. That's why he forbids me from having this relationship with this person or that person. Temptation is always an attack upon the Word of God and the character of God, and we would do well to recognize it. It's why Paul issued this warning to the church at Corinth, 2 Corinthians 11.3. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. He's still doing it. He's still doing it. Beware of the serpent's cum- cunning, and beware of the devil's schemes. Know the word of God inside and out. And if Genesis 3 tells us anything, know it word perfectly. You're, kids, your are Awana leaders. They're, just not, they're not just being strict meanies who won't give you your points if you don't, you don't say it correctly with only these two helps that you get. It's because small changes in the Word of God changes the meaning and changes your perception of His character. It's worth putting in the effort to know it right and with accuracy. If you want to resist the devil's temptations, know the Word of God inside and out, and thereby know the character of God. And so continue to love, trust, honor, obey, and enjoy Him with all your heart. So that's the anatomy of sin. Let's focus for a few minutes on what sin produces. Let's look at the atrocity of sin. The result of Adam's fall are absolutely devastating. The consequences of the fall are far-reaching, affecting several different spheres of man's relationships. It affects his relationship with creation. Look at verse 17. And to Adam he said, It affected man's relationship with one another, including and perhaps especially his relationship with his wife and her relationship with him. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. There's been a lot of debate as to what verse 16 means. But because of the identical language, look at Genesis 4:7 real quick, and I'll tell you why I understand Genesis 3:16 to mean what I think it means. In Genesis 4:7, God uses the exact same two words when He's addressing Cain: "If you do well, will you not be accepted? If you do not do well, sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. It wants." To have you, sin and you, it wants to have you, but you must master it. Same two verbs. And so, when we turn back just a half chapter earlier, and God says, "Your desire will be for your husband, but he will rule over you." There's a there's a force between. There's an enmity. That's the word I'm looking for. There's an enmity between the wife and the husband that is produced by this sin. And as a result, there's a power struggle within the marriage. At her worst, the woman will attempt to control and manipulate her husband. And at his worst, the husband will attempt to dominate and master his wife. In any case, in either case, it's a far cry from the one flesh union that God designed. All right, but my focus this morning as we conclude is going to be on the The effect that sin had upon man's relationship with God. So we're dealing right now as we close with the vertical effects. The first and immediate effect of the fall was an overwhelming sense of shame. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. This stands in stark contrast to the end of Genesis chapter 2, doesn't it? When the man and his wife were both naked and unashamed, now they're ashamed and they try to cover their nakedness. When the man and his wife ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they, they did not attain to the knowledge of God like Satan had promised. They only attained to the knowledge of their own nakedness before God. False promises. They were both naked and ashamed, and in their nakedness and shame, they made a pathetic attempt to cover their nakedness with loincloths made from fig leaves, which, before you laugh, is really no different than what we do today when our own eyes are open to the nakedness of God, and we try to conceal our shame with good works, don't we, right? Well, I did horrible things on Saturday night, things I'm ashamed of, so what do I do this morning? I'm going to go to church. And I'm going to read my Bible more. I'm going to drop a little bit more into the offering plate. I'm going to be a little bit nicer to my kids today. Fig leaves. No amount of human effort or human merit will ever conceal our shame and our nakedness before God. You must be clothed by God In garments of His own making. Garments that He will make for you out of a costly sacrifice. Garments which He will make out of the shedding of blood. But more on that Friday night. Come. The next effect of the fall was fear. For the immediate impulse of Adam's heart is to flee from the presence of God and to hide from him. And men and women have been hiding from God ever since. Verse 8, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Why did they hide themselves from the presence of the Lord? Because they were afraid. Why were they afraid? Because they were naked. Why were they afraid to be uncovered in the Lord's presence now when previously they had been unashamed? It's because while in their state of innocence, their nakedness was a sign of their innocence. And they felt no shame in the presence of the Lord because they had no sin. But now, their conscience was defiled, and in their guilt, they felt an intense humiliation before the holy gaze of God, and all they wanted to do was to cover themselves up, to hide themselves from His piercing gaze. Now, their nakedness was no longer a sign of their innocence, but a sign of their guilt and of their exposure to the wrath of God. And so they felt as Isaiah did in the presence of the thrice holy God, woe is me, I am ruined, he says in Isaiah 6, 5. They felt as Joshua the high priest did in Zechariah chapter 3, when he found himself standing before the Lord in his temple, clothed in filthy garments and satan standing at his right hand in order to accuse him he felt much like peter did when the holy and sovereign power of christ was revealed and all peter can do is fall down at his feet and say depart from me lord i'm a wicked man it's fear and it's shame working together to say i've got to get away It's fear created by the sudden and stunning awareness that I can no longer stand in the presence of a holy God when I am unholy. And what a sinner won't give in that day for a covering, something to clothe their guilt and their shame and their nakedness before God. What a sinner wouldn't give in that day to be dressed in the righteousness of another. But more on that Friday night. The third effect of the fall was the impulse to evade responsibility for their sins. Notice the way both the man and the woman passed the blame. Verse 11, he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman you gave me to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. Do you see the finger pointing? It was, it was her. Well, come to think of it, you gave her to me. It was you. And she goes, it was a snake. The fallen nature of man has lost all sense of integrity and responsibility. When confronted with sin, Adam first blamed the woman, she gave me the fruit, ultimately laid the blame at the feet of God himself, you gave her to be with me and she gave me the fruit. How quickly Adam turned from enthusiastically receiving the woman as a good gift from God to blaming God for giving her to him. And the woman was no better for when God turned and addressed her, she passed the blame over to the serpent. And it remains to this day a hallmark of the unregenerate man to evade responsibility and to shift blame. It's my parents' fault. James warned against this very thing, particularly as it pertains to God. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. God says if you want to point a finger, you point it at your heart. The righteous man acknowledges that all temptation would be futile if it did not find fertile soil within his own heart. And therefore he accepts responsibility for his sin, confesses his sin, And he repents. Fourthly, alienation from God. The Lord God said, verse 22, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he came. He took out of He drove out the man and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Everything about those three verses screams exclusion, alienation from the living God. The man is excluded from the tree of life because the blessing of eternal life is only bestowed on those who are faithful to the covenant. He's forfeited his right to the tree. And God actively drove, he cast man out of the garden to the east. He banished them from his holy presence. And not only this, he didn't just banish them, but he stationed cherubim, these terrifying angelic guardians at the entrance to the Garden of Eden and to the Tree of Life. And any sinner, note this, any sinner who attempts to approach the Garden of God and the Tree of Life, no matter what direction they come from, because the sword is turning in every way, they will be immediately cut down. So much for all roads lead to heaven, not with a sword that turns in every direction. Only in Christ is there hope of return. Derek Kidner writes, The cherubim, God's multi-form and awesome throne bearers in Ezekiel's visions, are seen elsewhere as symbolic guardians of the Holy of Holies, their forms embroidered on the veil that barred access to it and modeled above the ark. Yet at the death of Christ, this veil was rent in two and the way to God, thrown open in fact as well as in symbol. But more on that Friday night. The final effect of the fall is death. God swore that the penalty for breaking his covenant by eating from the forbidden tree was death. All right, what did he mean? Did he mean physical death, or spiritual death, or eternal death? Well, the answer is all three. The instant Adam and Eve ate from the tree, they died spiritually. As we've seen, their very natures were changed and their relationship with God was severed. Then in verse 19, God pronounces the sentence of physical death. You will return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. One day, Adam will return to the dust from whence He came, and unless He is rescued by divine grace, unless God provides for Him an atonement for His sin in the form of a Redeemer and a bloody sacrifice, upon His physical death, He will enter into everlasting death, which the Bible calls hell. This is why Jesus rides into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. The seed of the woman was coming In fulfillment of the promise of Genesis 3.15 to crush the head of the serpent by absorbing in his own body the serpent's bite and the sting of sin and in so doing to provide the atonement for sin and overcome the horrendous effects of Adam's fall. But more on that Friday night. I want you to come. Why don't you bow your heads with me and I'm going to close with this. Here's Genesis 3, thousands upon thousands upon thousands of years ago. And here you sit today. And I want to try and take Genesis 3 and by the power of the Holy Spirit while you meditate before God, and I want to try to press it into your hearts because there are two types of people here Today, Two types of people in this room that I want to address. There are people in this room today who are presently being tempted to disbelieve God's word and to distrust God's character. Like Adam and Eve before the fall, you, and you know who you are, I pray by the Holy Spirit. You stand on the edge of an abyss about to plunge to your death. Your hand is outstretched toward the fruit and you're about to bring it to your mouth. Under satanic temptation and deception, the fruit looks like pleasure. It is desirable to the eyes. It looks like freedom. But it is not. It is sin. It is death. Step away from the edge. Step away from the tree. Trust God's Word and trust His love as a good and generous Father. His prohibitions are not designed to kill your joy, but to increase it exponentially and everlastingly. This morning, you who stand at the root of the tree, at the edge of the abyss, consider your life and consider the sin which you are contemplating and which you are now dabbling in. And repent. Others of you are here. And you find yourself not standing at the root of the tree. But hiding in the trees of the garden. Because you've already eaten. You've taken the plunge into the abyss. And like Adam and Eve after the fall. You hide from God's presence in shame. In fear. And in a distinct sense of alienation. To you I say, beloved, if you hear God's voice today crying to you, calling you out from your hiding place of sin, come to him, because today he calls out and his call is not in order to damn But in order to save and to cleanse and to pardon and to forgive and to restore and to reconcile and to clothe. It will not always be so, but it is so today. So today, whether you're at the root of the tree or you're hiding among the trees of the garden and you hear the God of creation call out in Christ, Adam, where are you? Come to me. I will give you rest and I will give you joy and I will justify you and forgive you and cleanse you and clothe you. Adam, where are you? You rise up and you answer. You call out to him and you will be saved.